0: Sprouta opens up a world of collective expertise and unique solutions for organizations who have the drive to maximize their impact and want to do good work in the world. Sprouta gives you a new way to identify and solve your real challenges within people, performance, and culture. This is a Sprouta podcast. Hi, my name is Craig Foreman, also known as Culture Craig, and I'm a lead people scientist with Culture Amp the world's top-ranked people and culture platform. I've always been driven by a genuine curiosity of people and have built a career around my personal mission to help the world work better by improving the places we work. In this podcast, we're amplifying the professional and personal stories of people in our industry who are passionate about making a difference and courageously delivering better experiences for humans at work. This is Humanity Works with me, Culture Craig. Three, two, one, two. As the Chief People Officer at REA Group, Australia's leading digital advertising listings business, Mary Limonis is responsible for people strategy across a global network of 2,600 employees. One of Australia's most well-known industry practitioners and passionate about leadership, Mary is also an incredible leader herself. With more than 25 years of experience across a number of industries, Mary calls on courage, compassion, and curiosity to make her mark on a career that many would see as her calling.
1: And I firmly believe, and this is probably a personal ethos, my mother has always said to me, you know, the true captain shows their colours in the storm, not in the calm waters. And It's easy to be good when things are great. It's harder to be great when things are bad. And really good leaders are great, irrespective of the, the market context that they're operating within. It's harder because we all get tested and triggered, but you know, that that is what great leaders do. They're super consistent.
0: Mary Limonis, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing?
1: Very well, Craig. Thank you so much for the time and I'm really looking forward to the conversation.
0: So look, let's get started. As we said, we'll do our two intros to start. And the first one is the professional intro. I met you at a networking event. Hey, I'm Craig. I'm a lead people scientist at Culture Amp. Mary, you are?
1: I'm the chief people officer of REA Group. And uh, I've been in this role for about three and a half years and head up uh, people strategy across uh, the, the group. That's various businesses, various locations around the world.
0: What about if you introduce yourself to people outside of it, they can see on your LinkedIn profile, your professional description, who's Mary?
1: Mary Lamonis, uh mother, uh, partner, hopefully good friend, uh, daughter, sister, very curious, uh, lover of all things, um, that, that spark new ideas and, uh, open-minded and and loves to travel probably. Well, they don't get to do much of that these days, but yes, Nice. a lover of travel.
0: <laughs> you said curious. I, I I love that. And I guess just a question there is, how's curiosity served you? How does it serve you in your role and um, working with people?
1: Oh, it's, it's a really good question. I think um, I've been in the people and culture space my entire career. So it wasn't a, an accident. It's where I started, not where I was educated actually, um, but where where I started. And I think so much of the work that we do in this space is about understanding others, understanding context. And so curiosity, I think, is, is you know, a core attribute of the work, uh, because the only way that you can seek to understand is to inherently be curious. I mean, you could do it at a superficial level, um, but I think in, in order to really thrive in, in the space that I've chosen to call my profession, it's an essential ingredient in doing the work well.
0: Yeah. And while we're still in the intro, what's the kind of the career trajectory for you?
1: I actually studied a Bachelor of Manufacturing Management, so I should have been in supply chain. That was my sort of inherent career path. Um, And I realized as I was making, um, as I was doing all my, you know, it was sort of a dual degree. You know, I did a lot of commerce and business. And then I also did a lot of engineering subjects. And I think it was when I was doing oxy welding and arc welding, um, realizing that that was probably not where I had my greatest passion and was fortunate enough um, to fall into a graduate program with a, a consumer goods brewing company in Australia, not Foster's, the other company. Um, uh, I am showing my vintage now. They said, look, we'd love to start you in HR. And, and I never left. I Instead of moving around functions, as a lot of grads do, I, I just stayed in HR and moved around different businesses. And, and so that became my career. And I've I've done generalist work. I've done COE work. You know, I'd consider myself a deep OD specialist. I spent about four or five years in that space. Um, and then eventually, you know, my philosophy has always been do the job. If you can do it well, then look ahead. And, you know, and, and led me to this role at REA.
0: And for those that don't know, REA is?
1: REA is a digital listings, um, advertising business, and so much more than that. Now that's where we started. Uh, it's a young company in Australia that started in Australia in a garage in Doncaster in Melbourne uh, 27, 28 years ago now, um, and has become really the, the the leading digital advertising listings business in Australia. And uh, we have businesses across Southeast Asia, India. Yeah. We are continuing to branch out into mortgage broking, property data, uh, and we're about 2,600 strong now. Nice.
0: Well, I am, I am a fan of all tech startups, Melbourne-based. <laughs> it's particularly, <laughs> uh, you know, Culture Amp, same, same story. So it's, it's, it's nice to, to hear that. Okay, so, you know, the more these conversations I do and have done and in my own journey, I didn't start in this place either. And I've had, I had a wild ride. But yet looking back, I can put my finger and see these moments like, of course I knew it. I just hadn't connected the dots. So I'm curious for you. When you were young, was there an experience? Was there an event? Was there something that you can look back now and go, you know, I knew I was going to be working with people or I knew this was my calling. Uh, Did you have that experience? Or Can you think about like the first time you knew or you had that sense for this type of work?
1: Yeah, I would say it was pretty young. Um, I always found myself gravitating to trying to help people in whatever challenge they were facing i think that was always something that i i noticed i would be the person that would notice the person that needed some support whether it was um explicit or implicit and, and i would say that was from a very young age mm-hmm. and i always was very willing to step up and put my hand up to, to help move things forward i always wanted to be involved and to have a platform to be able to lead and make a difference, you know. So I was the primary school captain and I was the high school. I I just always felt that that was something that I wanted to do from a leadership point of view. Within that, equally, there was a sense of how it engaged and impacted others. And, you know, albeit that my uh, bachelor's degree, you know, wasn't in psych or wasn't in, you know, uh, humanities or HR, those callings had always been there, I think, for sure.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned, you mentioned that you did this grad program, they put you into an HR track and you stayed, was there a moment when you were in that, like, did it just kind of happen or was there a moment where there was like an aha, are you new? I'm staying put.
1: I think it was, I don't know if there was a moment, but there was definitely, you know, I'm a big, I'm a big believer in, you know, the three circle or, you know, I think you could gas now, but you know, that sense of do what you love, do what you're great at. And I, I think there was definitely a sense when I had started working in that space that, I was doing something I really enjoyed and I felt, and others were telling me, was adding value. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember applying. There was lots of grad programs back then and in the they were very big in the consumer space. You know, Mars, Nestle, Unilever, all those big organisations were running a lot of those programs and I would always put supply chain as my first preference, even though I actually knew that that wasn't where my heart was because I thought, well, I need a job. So... <laughs> And this is what I studied. And, and funnily enough, the feedback I'd get from people is, look, we could see you in sales. We can see you in mm. the HR group. So people were seeing something oh. in me. I actually, one of the organisations who shall remain nameless said, we actually think you're too gregarious for the supply chain <laughs> organisation, which I thought, well, it could be damning on me, but it would also be damning on the function that is supply chain. I don't know. But um, yeah, but, but I felt like early on in my career, I, I just felt like I was really enjoying what I was doing. And I felt like I, I could see that it was adding value. Yeah. And that for me was all the propulsion that I needed to sort of say, yeah. I'm going to stay in this space.
0: And clearly you're a people person, people are reflecting that. Of all the things to choose, aside from from HR, people ops, why supply chain? Like where did that decision come from?
1: Well, supply chain, because I studied a bachelor of manufacturing management. And so I just felt like, well, that was the track, right? You know, I'd I'd gone to, I'd been paid to go to university to study this. This is what I should do as a living. And yeah, so so I, I guess it was just that conditioning of you do what you think you should do because you've studied it, mm. you know, and I think you don't realize this when you're at university. Our kids, hopefully, I keep on saying to my son, look, don't get too stressed. Whatever you choose may not be the place you stay. And I think when you're younger, you don't realize that you think, well, this is what I've studied. So this is what I should do.
0: Yeah. It happens. And I love what you hit on about people reflecting back to you. And it, it, I think about many conversations I've had in my learnings in my life that, you know, we're not designed to go it alone anyways. Like we've always, even as babies looking to our parents, like how we work with each other and listen, I guess where I'm going with this question is what would you say to others about like what the world is reflecting back to us and listening to that and how we learn. I mean, I thought it was really interesting that the world was kind of telling you as you were on your own journey, trying to figure it out. So if you were talking to a group of like, like your son, uh, around yep. this of like listening to the signals and, you know, what comes up for you when, when I ask that question?
1: It's a really good question. I think, um, I would say you have to listen to both voices. You know, I think you you have to hear what's being reflected back, um, be open enough to hear what's being reflected back as well as tapping into, you know, the, the second brain, you know, the, the the gut. I think there's definitely something in that. I think, and for me, the gut is just so important because when I talk about when that moment clicked once I was in the PNC space was I could see I was enjoying it and I could see I was adding value. That was something I saw in myself. That just verified what had been probably being reflected back to me a bit earlier when I hadn't actually experienced the world of being in HR. And so it was, a, it was what people were seeing that I hadn't seen in myself. And so sometimes people see that first. And then there are other times when you might have a point of view and it's just about either, you know, verification. You know, I I know that we all sort of say it's about trying to look at your life through all the different angles and, and sometimes it's hard because you get wedded to things and I think this is one of those wonderful things I I never thought experience was important until I became more experienced. (laughs) Um, And Your clarity of understanding, I think, does sharpen as you have more experiences. You know, Mm -hmm. hopefully, if we're all open-minded enough, that's what does happen. You have to be prepared to be open to hearing what other people have to say, but you also have to have a sense of what it is you think. You know, I think the challenge is you get more experienced. Uh, is, is how do you make sure you keep that open mind and not get too wedded to your own sort of long held beliefs? You have to constantly be prepared to challenge them.
0: Right. Yeah. If you don't have that kind of that internal grounding and you're just looking for others opinions, you're, you're drifting. But if you're only listening to yourself, sometimes you're, you know, there's that quadrant of what you see in yourself that others don't see what others see that you don't see. Exactly. So how do you balance that? I think back to when I joined culture Amp. one of the questions in my interview was I was doing this presentation. It was, what's your superpower? And I remember thinking about it, I listed a few out that I thought, but it clicked for me, go ask some other people. And it was interesting that like three of the five people said consistently one of the things I had written down. And that to me was, that's the one I should probably use. Absolutely. So how to to balance those two out. Okay, so we'll end this by saying, let's say you're in front of a, a classroom of graduating seniors at uni. And you're giving them one message about what they should hold on to as they kind of embark on their careers from your experienced position. If you had to summarize that, what would the message be to that that group of young people?
1: Simple to say, harder to do. Find what you love, find what you're great at, the career that will allow you to live the life you want to lead and Mm -hmm. whether that be flexibility, money, travel, whatever. Really work hard to find the intersection of of those three. And and now we we talk about purpose, you know, at a broader level and, and what we'll give back at a community level uh I sort of wrap that up in the life you want to lead because people have a different dial on that not everyone's wired in that same way and so I think yeah find what you love find what you're great at find what's going to allow you to live the life you want to live we work a lot you know you take sleep out of the equation i think ikea says a third a third a third in their ad it's probably a little bit more than a third at work <laughs> you know a third sleep a third work a third play you know we we all know inherently how much value we get others get when you're doing what you love and you're doing something you're great at and yeah. so that would be the big message for me. An old message, uh, you know, but I think it, it, it's timeless.
0: It's important. And I love what you said too, you know, as I've gone on this journey working with individuals and organizations, remembering passion's an interesting thing, but my passion may be I love building and flying model airplanes. It's never going to pay my bills. So I go to work. So I can do that passion, and remember that our passions don't always have to be directly aligned with work. Some people are working and are fine working to do the other thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And just holding that and remembering not every, not everybody's job has to be their everything, and that's okay too.
1: Oh, absolutely. Because the life you want to lead, you know, if if you're doing something that you love and you're great at, but requires you to sacrifice all these other aspects of who you are, that's not sustainable. That's not a sustainable model. Um, and I think you mm. know. It's got to be sustainable. Whatever we do has to be sustainable.
0: Now let's get into uh, Mary today and the work you're doing. How would you define culture? Because people love to get up and talk about culture, but I these, these words are tricky. And I think we have to define what we're talking about before we really dig into it. So how do you define these, these these things, culture and engagement?
1: I define culture as, you know, in its most simplistic way, and I think a lot of people have said this before, you know, it's the It's the implied and the explicit, you know, scale, collective behaviours, symbols, artefacts in a business. Uh, And engagement for me is is how people essentially feel. I was really fortunate to start my career in a company that was very progressive in the PNC space in the mid-90s. And we started talking a lot about the interrelationship between leaders, culture, engagement and performance. Mm -hmm. And, And the way we talked about it is, you know, Leaders are essentially the organisational role models that cast the biggest shadow. How they show up impacts culture, which is the scale, collective, implied or explicit behavioural norms, mm-hmm. which then impacts how people feel, which is engagement, which then impacts performance. Yes. And that arrow goes both ways. And I think that's what we really strive for in our work, because The true testament, I think, of a business is not the good times. It's the hard times. And your ultimate safety there are leaders who are constructive at scale, not one or two, but the majority of leaders really having underlying strong constructive behaviors, because that will be the ultimate test, I think, of a business's ability to sustain its performance in good times and in bad.
0: You know, I love this high level definition culture is the way we do things around here yeah really simple but it's it's what you're talking about it's the behaviors however i think that umbrella covers family covers how i am with my friends how i am at work we have to be clear that when we come together in organizations there's also contracts we sign we're there to produce where you know the, these layers are there and if we don't it disappears my family's not going to disappear work may shift the company may not fail i may not work out here Um, So I really like what Didier, our CEO says that, you know, your brand is your promise to your customer and your culture is how you deliver. So what are the behaviors we do collectively in this group to achieve that outcome, which you talk about performance, right? But I also like what you said about the hard times, because I think what's interesting is we've spoken about that. We've always been speaking about that and we've individually been, or, you know, going through hard times in different places, but this past year, what's your reflection? Like, what are your thoughts? How, how have we done? What have you seen in your world around, around that? with culture and, and, sh- and going through challenging times.
1: Maybe it's a, it's a testament to my age. Hopefully it's not a testament to a lack of new ideas, <laughs> but I think those tried and true principles were just so amplified for organizations in 2020, um, transparency, uh, communication, um, listening, you know, you just there's just no substitute for an organization to behave in that way um, and engage with its people in that way, particularly when times are challenging. So I think for me it, it's just been trust, transparency, communication, um, you know, compassion, clearly. You know, I, I always say that these roles, particularly when you're in PNC, it doesn't work without courage, but it doesn't work without compassion. And you have to have those two things really very well melded together as attributes in the, in the way that we do our work. And and I think that was also another key thing that good organization showed last year.
0: Yeah. How about personally, anything would you say like was a challenge for you, a place where you really grew or it stretched you in this past year?
1: Yeah, look, I think um, it was lovely to be um, reconnected as a family. Um, my husband and I both travel extensively for work, always have and uh, our son is 10 turning 11, and I think we we both sat down after the first lockdown and said, actually, this is the longest that we've ever been in the same place at the same time as a family since our son was born. That was a decade. Like, that's nuts when you sort of go three months is the longest that we've been in the same place at the same time. And so I think it was uh, a really affirming Thing for us that we were there together for so long and we still came out the other side Mm -hmm. feeling good about it Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, but also I think a a reminder of um, you know I I think you know we all know that that this last year has really reshaped how people think about things like travel and distance and um, you know physical connection versus virtual connection and and I think that's been an unlock and frankly we don't want to go backwards and a lot of our people don't want to go backwards. You know, people have got time back and they don't want to lose it.
0: I have long been fascinated with the idea of paradox or allowing two truths to coexist. As much as our minds want to form definitive answers to make sense of our world, the truth is that we live in a world that is full of contradictions. A few examples would be transparency versus privacy, speaking up versus disruption, a belief in self-expression versus somebody sharing ideas that go against our values, or going through a hard time while feeling grateful and appreciative for how good you have it versus others. I recently heard a quote from Robert Baralt, an American opera singer who speaks to the value of embracing contradiction, in which he says, There is in every truth a wise saying, and in every contradiction, two wise sayings. So when I first connected with Mary, she introduced me to the idea of paradox navigation, that to truly allow for agility within our organizations, we need to manage through paradox versus trying to eliminate it. When organizations look for a single solution to a problem, they do not fully address how to change. We also discussed how often it's the role of HR to make sense of the daily contradictions that play out in our organizations. So I want to hear more from Mary about dealing with Paradox and how she uses it in her work.
1: I started my career in the mid-90s. My first year at work was 1995 and at the time, one of the books that was very, very popular was Jim Collins's Good to Great. He, in that book, talked about the tyranny of the awe and the genius of the end. And so for me, I think that is essentially another way of saying paradox. How do you look at what seemingly on the surface of these diametrically opposed outcomes and feel com- comfortable in sitting in both and then understanding how you might deliver against both? You know, the the example that I used um you know when people sort of say oh, i was the head of hr for the arnott's biscuits business in the region for 8 years and you know with some different roles in that period but they people sort of say well how would you describe those 8 years and i said look for me what success looked like is the business had to totally reshape itself had had some of the most challenging performance years it had ever had we not only maintained engagement we grew engagement we retained you know 90% of our key talent we came out of the other side, a stronger business. And and for me, that's ultimate paradox navigation. Because I think a a lot of times people go, okay, well, if business is going bad, therefore engagement should be bad. No. Why why wouldn't we challenge ourselves and say there is a way for those things to to exist and for, for people to feel good about their business, even if the business is currently experiencing some tough times? And and that's what's been really interesting for me, transitioning from a business like Arnott's, which has been 155 years old, Campbell's Soup just turned 150, I think, a couple of years ago, to coming to a newer business that hasn't necessarily seen those cycles. Mm. And they exist. You know, what goes up must come down. You know, you will not always be on this incredible growth trajectory of double digit, you know, top and bottom line growth.
0: Tech people, cover your ears. Tech... <laughs> <laughs> High growth doesn't stay forever.
1: But, you know, that is that is the cycle. That is the cycle of business. It's the cycle of life. And I think um, to, to challenge ourselves and to know that we can try and we can strive for, for excellence and optimism and performance, even if on the surface, you know, some that, you know, the business might be facing certain challenges, I, I think. You know that is our obligation as as PNC practitioners. We we have to be. We can't all sort go. Okay, well the year's really tough, so we're all going to pack up and go home. Like that's that's not how it works. And and I firmly believe. And this is probably a personal ethos. My mother has always said to me, you know, the true captain shows their colours in the storm, not in the calm waters. And it's easy to be good when things are great. Mm-hmm. It's harder to be great when things are bad. And really good leaders are great irrespective of the, the market context that they're operating within. It's harder because we all get tested and triggered, but you know that that is what great leaders do. They're super consistent.
0: When this conversation, I've had this conversation a few times, and I, I think back to a conversation I had earlier last summer with uh, Caitlin Holloway and Claude Silver, and I thought what was really interesting that came out of that conversation was also, be looking for those that aren't in leadership positions right now, because tough times will help you identify future leaders. So,
1: absolutely,
0: right. Be looking who are our future leaders. How do they, how, you know, how do they survive this, and how do they show up in, in this particular challenging time, or in challenging times in general?
1: I think we just all sort of say resilience is a core competency, and it rolls off the tongue. Now, you know, that wasn't something that was there and clear as an attribute or a competence at the beginning of my career. You know, when 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 you were talking about competency models then. But now, you know, we understand that it does become, particularly as people grow in their careers, it becomes a defining attribute of success. You know, not the only one, but it's certainly critical. You know, life is full of complexity and challenge and um, how people navigate that and their ability to bounce. You know, I always talk about the rubber band, you know, I've, I've had the Good fortune of working with a a coach on and off throughout the years, and someone said to me, "Well, what's been the biggest thing? The rubber band's just shorter. I just bounce a bit faster than I used to. The things that used to keep me down for months now keep me down for days. Yeah. Things that used to keep me down for days now keep me down for hours, and and that's I think if all of us can make that rubber band just that much shorter than it used to be, uh, you know, that's." That's progress.
0: It and it's a reminder, you know, I had read a lot, you know, in school and leading up to, there's a lot of research around uh, cultures going through challenging times and how people will reflect back and say, yeah, there's something I miss about it. So in UK during the bombing raids, soldiers that go to war often will come back and say, you know, as, as awful as it was, there's a piece that I missed, the camar- the connection, the going through that challenge together. And, you know, we saw it in the engagement scores at Culture Amp as well. It was really interesting when this happened, a lot of scores shot up and you know our hypothesis was that oftentimes that hyper communication that happened early on mm-hmm. you know we know that communication is one of the biggest drivers of engagement and we saw a lot of that shoot up the hypothesis is that the the communication that was happening especially in the beginning was almost what people crave and that we've been seeing engagement scores dropping again and there's a correlation to how people are reflecting back on the communication. So one of the things we've been saying to leaders is communicate as if this is the beginning of pandemic people are, are, are craving that, that what you think is in crisis is what people want often.
1: So true. Craig. And, and, and it was, you know, something that it was funny, the, the, the year prior to COVID so late 2019, ARIA probably had one of its, of its toughest business years and mm-hmm. um, you know, we'd gone through a big reall. We were coming off the back of some, you know, decline decreased engagement results, not particularly bad, but certainly low. lower for REA. And it was in one of our engagement solutioning groups was one of our sales team members in another state that said, you know, can I just give you some feedback? We have a real opportunity in the way we do our town halls. You expect to sort of zoom in and, and look at Owen on this tiny little screen. He's in the back of some room somewhere. Can we just sort of shake that up? We think it's an opportunity. Anyway, fast forward to March, COVID happens. And we started instigating these weekly town halls um, where Owen just got on Zoom and started talking to the business. And he's our CEO, Owen Wilson. And we we're really fortunate because Owen is naturally great right on his feet and very happy to speak authentically and transparently, unscripted. Maybe some guide, but he knows what he wants to say. And it was an absolute game changer for us. And we have kept the town halls. Um, we've, we've dialed them back. They're not every week. They're every second week or fortnight if you're Australian, but I know fortnight doesn't mean much to an American.
0: Unless you work for an Australian company, you learn quickly.
1: Yeah, unless you do. Well, you true. Yes, you do. You do. I keep on forgetting culture it's Australian. Um, so yes, and we've kept them and we will, we will keep them. And even to the point where, even if people are physically in the office, if you are presenting at the town hall, you are on zoom. It seems like something so small, yet it was so powerful. And we will, to your point, Craig, we will absolutely continue that. We will not lose that. It's good to hear. In the way that we communicate with our business.
0: It's great. I mean, I hope we all learn. Like there's a lot to take and these these challenging times offer us all a lot. It, you know, it's not just get through it as quickly as possible. What can we gather along the way so we can grow? And I think this is a, you know, a real turning point for all of us in, in building our our organizations. So before we leave the paradox piece, I just ask, and this will probably lead us into the next piece is, how do you develop that? How do you support? I mean, clearly that's a model that's important to you. How is that coming through in your work? And how do you support people around managing through paradox, managing through these contradicting ideas that seem to, to counteract one another?
1: I always lead by asking, "What's the end?" Well, you know, because usually people will say, we, "We could do this" or "We could do that." Um, so my first question to people is, "Okay, help me understand the end in all of this. Is there an end?" And you know. I, I think a lot of it is is, is role modelling, it's coaching your own team. Um, it's exciting when you hear people playing it back, whether it's in this business or other businesses, when you can see that people are actually constantly challenging themselves to see both sides of the equation, even if on the surface they seem to be opposite. In our profession, we just can't underestimate the impact of role modelling. And it's not about one leader. So I certainly, um, I've become known as the, the the sort of the, the phrase person a little bit at REA, I don't know. I think when you come from a different industry, phrases that are just really commonplace, then you come to a different industry who's not there in the business. When I was at Campbell's in the US, people always used to say, you know, is the juice worth the squeeze, right? Like, is it worth the effort? <laughs> and so I remember the first time I used that at REA and everyone just sort of stopped and started laughing their heads off. Like, what did you just say? And I'm like, really? I, I thought this was a common turn of phrase. Um, so for me, I think it's not just about me saying what's the end it's about people. And, and I'm really fortunate at REA, you know, I work with incredibly smart, talented people, um, who, if they see something that makes sense, they sort of just make it happen. And language is one of those things where I think if people pick up on an idea and they go, you know, this, this smells right, this feels right, let's do it. And I think the end sort of caught on quite quickly here, which was, which was nice. Yeah. Um, but certainly it's not about what I'm saying. I think it's, you know, there's a, there's a lot smarter people at REA than I, and I think they maybe went, yeah, there's something in this idea. Let's, let's keep on with
0: it. what I'm reading between the lines there is you didn't come in with a big stick and say, this is how we're going to do it. You led by example, you used it, it, it worked, it stuck. And that, that grew organically. People saw the value in that. And I think that's a, a sign of this is, here's the transition of leadership. I think it's, it's really critical, like to not try to force things, but to lead by example, and and have people kind of come along and if there's a better way of doing it.
1: Again, in, in the spirit of being curious, I always find myself when there is resistance, if there is resistance, you know, sort of checking back in and going, are people resisting because it's uncomfortable or are people resisting because this is just like a, I think it's a great idea, but others don't. I was recently talking to one of our board members and I said, we're in this interesting place with REA's culture because it's so strong but we're now at the 1% percenters, not the low hanging fruit. And sometimes that becomes even a little bit more complex because you've got to figure out, okay, what's going to move the needle a little bit more as opposed to, you know, things are just busted and we've got to do this, yeah. that, the other. That's not where we are. Um, and so for me, I, I definitely am always clued into, okay, what do people latch on But I'm equally clued into, okay, where is there a lot of resistance or reaction? And really seeking to understand why. And not at face value either saying, well, they're wrong or I'm wrong, but just sort of pausing and reflecting um, on it. And, you know, we, we had those moments when the business was in some tough times a couple of years ago. And on reflection, I think the things that didn't land so well was a combination of things that we could have done better as an organisation. But equally context, people had just never seen this business loose before or be challenged. And that was really hard.
0: So you're hitting on something that is definitely near and dear to my heart. So an organization of 2,600 people, like you said, the, the big stuff's been taken care of. It's about making those small tweaks. How do you, as a leader at your level, how do you effectively listen to 2,600 people and take action?
1: For us, one of the things that we did sort of probably put a little bit more of a spotlight on in my earlier years with the, with the business was, you know, being very explicit that there's a give and a get, you know, we talk about it as the give and the get at REA and, It's got to work for you and it's got to work for us. And so I would say that the umbrella that sits above all of this is we want to listen, but equally we need to understand what's right for the enterprise at large and the business at large. Uh, We do a lot of surveying, focus groups, listening, to the point where I sometimes worry, oh, my God, another survey. What's caught on recently, and I'm sure you know, maybe a, a little bit earlier than what I've gotten onto is this sense of uh, a listening strategy, which we haven't really talked about explicitly at REA, but it is just the way we roll. And it was interesting when COVID happened and we were doing those weekly town halls, we had this idea, well, why don't we do like a live tracker so that at each town hall, we ask people the same question every week, just to get a sense of sentiment. Mm-hmm. And then be able to play back and go, what information did we share and what did that do to sentiment? And it was the same question. We asked the same question for about 19 weeks straight, I think. Uh, And it was about, you know, I feel that the business and the leadership is acting, I have confidence in how the business and the leadership is is facing into this sort of challenge. So so for me, there is no substitute for asking people their points of view. And the balance that we try and strike, and I'm not sure if we always get it right, is you can over-survey and over-ask. But equally, as long as you get a statistically significant sample size telling you what you think, it doesn't have to be everyone always.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, But we take lots of mechanisms to keep on asking. And, you know, then we also seek to understand in different ways. So we recently did a culture diagnostic. Um, We used the Human Synergistics OCI for that. We just didn't leave it at that. The end was we actually did sort of focus groups and key interviews with leaders to be able to give us even further rich data to support the culture diagnostic. And the same with engagement. You know, we use Culture App for our engagement survey. Uh, and, you know, again, we, we don't leave it at just the survey. You know, we then follow up with conversations to really understand the, the, the data that we're getting back. We we constantly ask. Mm. But equally, I think we're very explicit now with the business, probably more so than we have been in previous years, that we want to understand how you're feeling, thinking. And the business has to make the right decisions for the enterprise at large.
0: And, you know, and, and engagement culture, there's no finish line. It's always, it's always an evolution. It's always, like you said, it's this listening cycle and you hit on something like now, you know, my first two years at culture Amp, that's pretty much what I did was working with organizations, helping them think about their strategies around this and leveraging our tools and, but one of the big things I took away from that time was that I, there's really this, this term survey fatigue. And what I learned is it's not survey fatigue. It's lack of action fatigue.
1: Yeah, so true.
0: If you're asking and people are giving you feedback and you're adapting and shifting and changing, they'll keep giving you feedback. It's, it's either when they don't see the perception that it's not being listened to, or it's really not being listened to, which is critical to know because I think there are a lot of organizations that do listen, that take action and aren't doing a good job of communicating we heard you this is what we heard this is what you'll see we'll follow up it's such a critical piece and do one or two of those things versus trying to tackle 10 at any given time or at least communicate out you're sending the signal we hear you and so people say well our our you know our response rates are are down and i said great take like what you just said you have enough data take that but communicate here the 60 percent that did respond here's what we're doing we're doing it again six months I promise you that if people are here seeing that you're responding, that those rates will go up because look, there's a historical lack of trust and organizations for a long time didn't do that. So now that we can, we should. And it's, it's not just about survey. Survey is just the first piece. It's collect survey.
1: Uh, absolutely. Right.
0: Understand what you collected and then take action, do something with it.
1: So true. I love that line. It's not survey fatigue. It's lack of action <laughs> fatigue. I will be using that. <laughs> um, and fortunately it's not a problem that we've experienced and so hopefully that's an implicit nod to the fact that people do see that we you know ask for information and do something with it you know that the most recent one was our future of work survey which we did back in august we're about to do again which really shaped our our position on future of work and what we were doing there so um it really is is pivotal but to your point it's just the start it's what you do with it that matters
0: and it never ends this idea that you're going to do it fix it and move on like I always talk to leaders about that. Remember, don't let go of this idea that it's one and done. This is a cycle. It's re- it just, you're always going to be do- collect, understand, take action, collect, understand, take action, and just keep moving in that cycle. So let's talk about leadership. I mean, again, I'd love to take your perspective. You think about it at a high level, you're thinking about you know, a lot of leaders. Um, how do you think about leadership? And how do you like one of the things you said was self leadership? I'd like to get into that, but like, let's just start high level around leadership and your approach to leadership.
1: I think it's just so critical in organisations. I really do. And I, I, I do, you know, firmly believe that, you know, whether you're an organisation of 100,000 or an organisation of 2,500, it's it's the collective leadership of the business. You know, if, if I've only got limited investment, I have to make sure that there's enough going into the leaders of the business. And whether they're senior leaders or frontline leaders, you know their reach and the and the the shadow and the shadow not being a necessarily a bad thing, but but the shadow they cast over an organisation is huge. And I, I often talk to my team. You know, it doesn't matter how you know fantastic the intended employee experience is, if if the vessel by which the individual experiences it, which is largely driven by their leaders, so much is reliant on how that is interpreted and enacted. Um, and engaged with by the leader of an individual in our business, and and that's the same as you know for me as it is for anyone else in the organisation. So, I I think of leadership at its core as as being excellence in. We've got our sort of our strategic leader framework at REA. Um, if I talk at the senior level, I would say it starts with being brave, um, and being brave not just from a interpersonal perspective, but also when you think about marketplaces and and looking at ways to to create. Um, new ideas and and take risks. I look at it through the lens of great leaders know how to simplify. They know how to regard what's important and disregard the noise. Um, They are considered, you know, they they are very thoughtful about where they they seek information and and they know that a key role that they have is to inspire. And, And so that's the framework that we use within REA as we think about our senior leaders. And then for people leaders, um, which we all are in different guises, we we get a little bit more specific about the the competencies that we look for um, in in good leaders, which is around empowering, um, creating psychological safety and inclusion and some other competencies as well. So, you know, for me, I think really good leaders, they're accountable, they are courageous and they're compassionate and they definitely motivate and engage people to be better than what they thought they could be
0: so if i say leader versus manager what would you say
1: uh, my expectations of a manager are that they're great simplifiers you know if i think about that as a strict as, a, as a sort of a strategic shift i would say that that is something that i expect at a higher order level um, you know we're going to get into a really interesting conversation here because some people would say well everyone's a leader even if you don't lead teams if i if i think about the The known convention of how I would use leader and manager, I would say for managers, it's about being operationally focused on the team and the goals. For leaders, I I would push more into that strategic lens where I think about inspiration. Do I think managers can't inspire? Like, of course they can. But I think it's also about what the role affords you to do. And as senior leaders in a business, your ability to scale just increases exponentially because you have the platform to do so. And as I say to people, you know, everyone's watching. They're always watching, (laughs) even though you don't think they are.
0: (laughs) We talked about your brand is your promise and your culture is how you deliver. To me, the underpinning of that is those values, those things that you can look to say when we're confused or not sure, help guide our behaviors. And we're very astute. We watch and we pick up. I think, like I talked about before, I can walk into my family, to my friends, to the grocery store, to work and adapt all the way through. Knowing different rules and different what's, you know, what's acceptable and what's not. And I think that's mm-hmm. really amazing about the human. I think it's part of our survival tactic and remembering that. And I always think about that with the employees. We all have that ability. They're watching. And if you're a particular senior leader, if there's a, a judgment of misalignment between what you're saying the values are and how you're behaving. It's probably the biggest thing that corrupts and undermines an organization. And then you get the gossip and the side stuff because they're trying to deal with that lack of alignment.
1: Absolutely, and you know, we we talked earlier about self leadership, and this is why I just think, you know, I often say to to senior lead or to leaders, like, where is your energy going? Is your energy going into being humanistic, being achievement oriented, uh, be, you know, affiliating to make sure that you get good outcomes, or is your energy going into self preservation? Because that's, I think, when that disconnect is really obvious, you know, and we've all been there. Like we call it call it flow, call it what you will. You reflect on those moments and you know that you've shown up as the best leader that you can be, I will guarantee you that there's no worrying about what one person thought or fixating on an issue that you had with someone else because you're just in that ultimate constructive state of leadership. And and that I think is is the key. You know, how can you be in those moments more than in the other moments? There's this great um Video, uh, which you know, I don't know if you've seen it's from the unconscious leadership
0: above and below the
1: yeah, the above the line, below the line video. like I love that video. oh yeah,
0: I'm very familiar. I've done work with Diana uh, Chapman. amazing. I love uh, the the above the line, below the line.
1: The thing I love about that video vignette or whatever we would call it is just it, it captures so many core concepts in this really simple, easily articulated way, and ninety nine point nine percent of us you know have insecurity, and the question is, how do we manage that? and make sure that it doesn't get in the way of doing what you need to do as a leader or what you need to do as an employee in the business. And I think really great leaders strive to be as constructive as they can be for the most time that they can be. And I say most time, because we are human.
0: I love this conversation. And every one of us as an individual, like you said, that insecurity, and I love what we're talking about too, back to those values and how we're watching. It's really about safety. Right. And I think that's the other thing, you know, in, in more tribal times, we are, you know, the people pick the leaders. We've There was a dynamic, but in our organization, sometimes leaders are put on people, so they're watching. And if those if that's not aligned, if what you're saying, what you're doing is different, and I have to still stay aligned with you, I'm not safe there. And what you mentioned self-preservation, so now we go into self-preservation mode. And that's where the small pockets, the small groups, and like, so I see it in organizations I've worked in with, the energy gets leaked. There's so much wasted energy in that, you know?
1: Oh, and, and, and look, we, we are really fortunate. Like I said, we've just done our culture diagnostic and we're in the middle of sharing the results with our, with our business. And, you know, for, for where we've come out at, you know, we're in in really close to being what, what our partner calls a regenerative culture. Uh, And, and that's truly one that just, you know, you've got that sort of momentum you know, you move from this sense of being responsive to being regenerative, and and we're really close. We're not all the way there yet, but that to me is just that flywheel because the energy goes into the right place, right? The energy doesn't go into oh god, what's this person going to think? And if I say this, and if I don't do this, the energy is just going into getting the work done because there's fundamentally good sense of self, good sense of trust. I'm working with people that have my back. We're all trying to do the same thing, and when you get that happening for most of the time. And I say most of the time because I think it, I think it's unrealistic to expect that it's going to be all of the time because we are humans and we have our triggers and our moments and our days. But when you get that happening at scale and at scale in leadership, that's just such an unlock because the energy is going into the right place.
0: When it's not happening, like we're all human too. Can we own it? Do we start blaming others or can we be like, man, wow, I'm triggered right now. Let me just take a step back, you know, versus... Lashing out, acting out, like unconsciously being driven by that versus being aware, you know, I circled in our conversation, you said something, I just circled it, but you said something about the human condition. Why did you say, like, what, what was, what What does that mean when you say the human condition? What do you think about?
1: Yeah, well, I, I think it sort of goes back to some of the things we've touched on, you know, and, and I'll go back to that unconscious leadership video, which I'm giving a great plug for in this podcast. I think fundamentally, we all want to feel like we belong. And, you know, I, I exclude the whatever percentage of the population maybe aren't wide that way, which I think is very, 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 very small. I think at its core, irrespective, and I've been very fortunate that I've now worked in a couple of different industries, but I've worked extensively in different markets. You know, I've worked in Russia and China and Belgium and the US and Australia. And I think there's more commonality than we realise. And the human condition for me is people want to feel a sense of purpose in the work that they do. They want to feel a sense of value in what they contribute. Uh, they want to understand that they belong to something bigger than just themselves. And they want to feel that they're appropriately recognised and rewarded for their contributions. And I think that is, you know, the, the human condition is so consistent. I think the volume dial varies. And that's where I, I certainly wouldn't say, I think what how, how that looks for Craig might be different to how that looks for Mary in a different context or in a different stage of life. But then the, the the fears that sit underneath that. And, you know, I remember in that video with the unconscious leadership where they talk about, you know, the fight or flight state was hardwired for a reason, right? You had to run away from the big scary dinosaur. And now that's sort of been usurped by ego. Um, And I think it's, I can't remember what the statistic is, you might know it better than me, but the fact that the brain switches between threat and reward state assessment, like I think it's five times in a second. Oh. Like we're constantly scanning. I don't know if that's right. So please forgive me if it's wrong.
0: I don't know the stat, but I mean, I think, I think I, I know, you know, I agree. It's amazing. It's, it goes back to that thing, how, what's going on behind the scenes that we're just, it's so programmed in us.
1: Exactly. It's scanning. Like, is this good for me? Is this bad for me? Is this good for me? Is this bad for me? And I think we all have that in us. I think the thing that's really exciting and where I have so much optimism is that we can manage that. You know, we can understand that in ourselves and we can think about that and we can arm ourselves with tools and techniques and strategies to be able to bounce. You know, that rubber band analogy, you know, what do you do to to just to bounce and be able to sort of see it in the moment? We talked about triggering, you know, for a lot of us, by the time we've been triggered, you know, and reacted, we may have not necessarily had the power to stop ourselves in the moment. However, if we do, that's great. And if we don't, it's that ability to quickly Course correct, and, and and get back on the get back on the right
0: path. The danger button is the danger button. I mean, when it gets hit, and and the you know and the all the chemicals that get released, and the adrenaline—that's real. That's the same stuff that was there to get us to run from the bear. But it's so important when we're sitting in a boardroom and your colleague says something that feels like an attack, which may or may not have been, and that button gets hit. You're not you're not running from a bear. And you know what I think about developing leaders is: can we create some safe spaces to play with that? It's a practice. I'm a military vet, right? So. In the military, they put you in intense situations over and over and over. So when it happens for real, you can respond. But if we can support one another and unpack some of this and look at it and go, oh, I really wasn't in danger. Or wow, that's, that, that's what happens to me when that happens. So why don't I not send that email and breathe? <laughs> you know, How do we condition ourselves and train for that?
1: And this is where the end comes in, Craig, because I think, you know, good organisations know that they have an accountability to create the environment for this to occur. Yes. One of the things we do as an executive team, and a lot of our teams use this method I use it my own team, is we, we we do a robust check-in at least once a month. And and by check-in, it's not like this quick whip around. It's a one-hour, sometimes 90-minute conversation where key leaders go around and go, okay, what is going on for me at the moment that people need to understand and how that might be impacting me? The end of that, though, is that's not then the excuse to not do a self-check-in and a self-leadership reflection. And I think that to me is is when, you know, those two things combine to create something really magical is when leaders understand that they have an accountability to self-reflect and equally that the environment within the organization is going to create the permissibility, the conditions to be able to have a broader conversation. And that that is really powerful.
0: Okay. I am so excited because I want to make sure we get this plug in. It's the Conscious Leadership Group, uh, Diana Chapman and Jim Detmer. Uh, brilliant! They have a book. Look them up. Um, but I've done work with them. I'm so blown away by their work. I didn't even know you were going to go there, but I'm so happy that you brought them up. Um, and this is an opportunity to call out their work. It's been really inspirational to me. And go watch. There's a YouTube video above and below the line. It's amazing. That alone is 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 a pretty is is a game changer. So I'm really grateful that you brought that up and we had the opportunity to call out these people that I am really proud to say I've worked with and inspired by. So thank you. All right. I'm ready to get to our speed round questions. You ready? Let's go. Here's the first one. New emergent theme in this past year for you. Agility. Biggest challenge for you. Uh,
1: Context switching.
0: You're on stage in front of every manager in the entire world. You're an audience of every manager in the world. You have a message you can get across very quickly what would you share with every manager in the world looking at you? What would you say?
1: Know what floats your boat and make sure, you know, what floats the boat of others. Mm.
0: Know yourself, know others music that has inspired your life. So band, a song, like when I ask that question, what comes to mind for you?
1: Oh, I love acid jazz. So incognito, brand new heavies, uh, Tash Sultana, not acid jazz, but she's a, an Australian artist too. I just really love it.
0: Cool. No one's said acid jazz yet. I love it. <laughs> if you could take a vacation anywhere in the world right now, where would it be?
1: I haven't been to Africa at all. Oh, and I'd love cool. to do that.
0: I'm with you on that one. Book recommendation.
1: Ooh, man. This is an oldie, but if you have not read it, you must read it. Catch 22. Such a good book. One of my favorite all-time books. I
0: haven't. And I need to.
1: Yeah, it's fantastic. Major, 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 major. You've got to read it. That, that will make sense when you read the book.
0: <laughs> I will do that. I'm going to read Catch-22. Uh, podcast recommendation.
1: Uh, look, I'm a big fan of Peter Crone, um, Mind Architect. I don't know if you've heard of him. I don't know if he does his own, but I hear a lot of his through um, Rongan Chatterjee, who is a UK doctor who has like a health and well-being podcast series
0: superpower. What's your superpower?
1: Courage and compassion.
0: How do you keep learning and growing?
1: I'm an experiential learner. So I don't love, I don't love hitting the books. Mm -hmm. So I take a lot of my learning, um, through others and just putting myself in, in different contexts that stretch me.
0: That was the last one, Mary so inspired thank you just for your commitment your work um i've really appreciated getting to know you in this process i hope that we uh continue a relationship and yeah thanks for doing this
1: thank you greg i really appreciate the opportunity and you know culture is such an important partner for rea uh and really helps us with our listening and understanding of our of our team members the first step i think in any in any good plan in any good action so thank you very much
0: Humanity Works is hosted by me, Craig Foreman. Produced and edited by Alessia Campagna with technical production by Anthony Watson. And a special thanks to our executive producers, Leonie Rothwell and Marcus Worrell. To activate a world of powerful potential, visit Sprouta.com. Hi, I'm Leonie. And I'm Marcus. And together, we founded Sprouter. If you love our Humanity Works podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, share, or leave a review wherever you listen. We
1: can't wait to bring you more stories of amazing people doing amazing things in people, performance and culture.